Running Light Ministry Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. You can support these podcasts by making a gift to the ministries at runninglight.org. So welcome. This is the 121st podcast of Running Light's Better Pleasure Podcast. And we are super glad you can join us today as we talk about the Bible, sex, love, and lust, and life. And I'm here with Pastor Peter Martin, author, <laughs> pastor, <laughs> feeling good because he just got student. some Botox. <laughs> <laughs> I'm officially a 60-year-old woman from California. <laughs> so he feels really good right now. So what we're going to talk about on today's podcast is we're going to get into a article that is by Professor, or the retired Professor Robert Jensen out of uh, University of Texas, El Paso. And I wanted to bring this one up. I found this one kind of interesting. This is kind of a good um, article of what Robert Jensen believes and what he's written about in kind of a condensed way with pornography and patriarchy. Because nice. he's a very big writer uh, against patriarchy. And it, this one's called Pornography Doing the Worst to Women Bringing Out the Worst in Men. So I'm going to read this. And Peter, you can make some cool color commentary. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> How's that sound? Sounds good. Okay. So <clears throat> it says this is his thesis. The pornography industry does the worst to women and brings out the worst in men. Let me explain this claim. So that's the thesis. The industry does the worst to women and brings out the worst in men. So this is talking about the pornography industry. So for those that are listening, we're talking about the industry itself. So we have an industry in the country that is legal. It's called the pornography industry. And that's what we're talking about. So we're not talking about so much like amateur porn at this level of, which is a lot of the pornography, just people videoing themselves, right. that kind of thing. We're talking about the industry. So, and it says, I'm a retired University of Texas professor who began studying the pornography industry in 1988, which led to a doctoral dis dissertation, scholarly articles, and three books on the subject. The conclusions I reached in my academic work were about the harms of pornography led me to contribute to the feminist anti-pornography movement, focusing on organi organi organizing public education events and writing for general audiences. These academic and activist activities are connected. Every year, more and more scholarly research in psychology and sociology is published that validates the insights of the feminist analysis, which makes the social movement more important than ever. Any thoughts so far? Uh, for those of you guys who listen to the podcast, you already know this, but in feminism, there are there's a divide there's actually a lot of divides in feminism but especially when it comes to pornography and sexual and female sexuality in general uh the two main uh schools of thought are the first one would be the more i, I would say the more uh old school version of feminism that looks at the patriarchy that looks like males and they look at it all as being evil and therefore when they look at sexuality they say that a woman cannot be truly liberated until men stop objectifying them. So because of that, feminists in this school of thought are very anti-porn. However, there's another version of, of feminism that says the only way a woman can be free is if she's able to be as autonomous and as in control of her sexuality as a man. So in other words, this version of feminism doesn't look at what has been happening in pornography as necessarily bad. They only look at it as being bad because it's male run. So their version is, no, 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 women need to start invading this industry and start taking it over. And therefore we'll be truly liberated as women when we start controlling our sexuality and expressing it however we want. So women like this would actually look at the porn industry, stripping, things like that, and they would look at it as a means of women's liberation. So as you can see, those are two very different ideologies. And so when Robert Jensen says, hey, I'm, I'm with the feminist anti-pornography movement, you have to understand that's not the only feminist perspective, 
but it is the perspective that he's talking about. Yeah, Robert Jensen likes to paint the picture that there is an objective truth here, that there is some kind of objective truth. Because let's face it, one person's freedom is another person's bondage. Right. And that's the problem, right, with what you're talking about. Right. Right? These different views of, of feminism that they have, it, one person's freedom is what the other person's calling a bondage, right. <laughs> vice versa. Right. Right? So um, he's, he's going to really show us that he thinks there's an objective truth. Now, where does he get that objective truth? It's based off of some humanitarian goal, right. um, some, this is the right thing to do for humanity. Right. You know, so we'll see how this kind of plays out. Now I have a problem at the beginning with every year, more and more scholarly research in psychology. Hmm. That's what I have a problem with. Psychology and sociology is published. And this is what bothers me is there is, there's always a lot of more and more scholarly research in psychology and sociology. But the problem is, is does that is psychology and sociology? Can we really say that it's a ve it's a very objective, truth-oriented, academic field? Right. We're not talking about math, you know, like law. Right. We're talking about kind of a what people call like a pseudoscience. Right. So there, there's a couple problems with using this, and uh, many different. Uh, people, both Christian and non-Christian, agnostic, atheist, scientists have pointed this out. What science can tell you, any field of science, and as Bo said, psychology and sociology aren't actually fields of science. They're, there's science aspects to them, but they're a little bit more subjective than, let's say, the science of studying chemistry or physics or something like that, where it's very concrete, it's validated across the world, things like that. But even with sci the scientific method in general, the problem is, is that science can tell you what is going on. What it can't tell you, what it lacks the ability to tell you is, so what, right? What about, like, so this is true, but so what? And Dinesh D'Souza is a really good example of this. He says, I can, you know, take a dog or a cat and I could just start stomping on its head right now. And I could do all these scientific experiments, you know, studying the, the neurological pathways and the pain center of its brain. I could in, then allow that animal to live and I could track the psychological impact of that kind of behavior upon it. But what I can't do through science is I can't say that I ought not to do this. Nothing in that scientific research tells me that I shouldn't stomp on the dog or the cat. All it tells me is that it's damaging to the dog or cat. It can't tell me what the moral implications of that, though. Uh, so that's true with all fields of science. So when he's saying that it, it brings it to light, what he's probably saying is that there's studies out there that show that being in the porn industry has negative psychological effects on some women. Uh, now, that's not true across the board, first of all. Secondly, that's very subjective because all you're talking about is do you feel depressed? Uh, do you feel saddened or insecure about what you've done on film? Right. These are very subjective questions. These aren't it's not like physics. It's not like like you said, Bo, like two plus two equals four. And then there's the other way of looking at it where some feminists who are in the more like uh, porn positive movement would say, well, that doesn't actually prove there's something wrong with porn. That just proves there's something wrong with that woman. So maybe she was already a damaged person. Maybe she was someone who was sexually abused or something as a child. And therefore, she had a twisted version of sexuality to begin with, and she has allowed her sexuality to be controlled by men, and all that's bad. But what if I, as a feminist, just decide that this is what I want to do? I'm making money off of it. I feel more empowered. I feel more encouraged. Uh, what, what's wrong with that? You know. Mm -hmm. So it, it it is very subjective, and as I said, it doesn't actually have a moral inc implication unless you already have an objective moral framework. So some people listening to me right now might be like, whoa, is Peter saying that this is not wrong, that we as Christians shouldn't look at the porn industry as wrong? No, we should, but that's because we already have a moral framework based on objective values that allows us to do that. The issue with Dr. Robert Jensen is he doesn't, right? He doesn't have that. Or if, if <coughs> or what is it? We don't, we don't, we're not, I don't know if we're ever gonna find out what exactly it is. Right. You know? Um, and so let's go on. It says, um, today I want to speak about the centrality of the feminist crit critique to understanding pornography. 
in the context of a larger feminist critique of sexually exploitation and men's violence. I emphasize this for three reasons. First, there are feminists who defend and even celebrate the pornography industry. Mm -hmm. Instead of confronting the sexual exploitation of women that is the, at the heart of the industry, these feminists claim to be defending sex workers or supporting sexual expression. The pornography industry does not treat the women who perform with even the minimal protection that should be according to workers because exploitation is at the core both the entertainment they produce and the process by which it is produced. The industry's business model will never promote expression that is consistent with human flourishing. That's that's a key phrase, by the way. That's his objective. This is the objective. So people like Robert Jensen, when they talk about the idea of where do you get objective morality apart from God, human flourishing tends to be the main one, and it seems like this is his. So I just want to point that out. But what I, what I, what I kind of already don't understand is, like, if f human flourishing is the goal, then the question comes of, like, well, who are you determined? What is a better kind of way of moral fl or of human flourishing? Right. Like, okay, so I is he against homosexuality? Right. You yeah. can't reproduce. Right. So I guess that's out. Is that out of the question? Yeah, it, it's it's a very vague. There's there's several problems with it. The first one is just you have to just assert that we ought to protect human flourishing. Uh, there's no objective reason for that. And some of them would be like, well, if, if humans don't flourish, we all die. Well, the problem is, is why should I care about the human species? What's most natural to me is just caring about myself. So in other words, uh, for someone who's a complete narcissist looking at this, why should I altruistically care about the human race as a whole? Um, why shouldn't I just care about what's best for me? And what's based for the human race as a whole may not be what's best for me, uh, right? So speaking about just this area, looking at someone who is making a lot of money from doing sexual work, let's say a porn actress or something like that, uh, which some of them are paid very well for the things that they're doing mm -hmm. uh, looking at them and saying you should give this up because it will be better for the human race as a whole why should she care <laughs> when she's like well if, if when i die one day i'm not i just cease to exist it's like turning off a computer why would i care that the people who come after me are doing better as a result of my sacrifice that doesn't make much sense yeah it sounds like a biden argument too it's like hey we're doing this for the collective Right. You know, we're making decisions for the collective. Right. We don't really care about the individual per se. Right. You know, if, you know, we're, we're about, but that's, to me, that seems a very, like in the Bible, you have the Pharisees that are really about the business of the collective. Right. When Jesus is on trial, they say, hey, why should the whole nation suffer um, instead of, like, let's just have one man die. Right. Like, instead of the whole nation be punished by Rome. Um, so they saw, they kind of used that logic of like, hey, man, we're looking out for the collective. And the problem is, is uh, like, you, like Bo kind of got at, there, when you say human flourishing, just because you can prove certain basic things doesn't mean you can prove more complex things with that framework. So even if I grant the framework of human flourishing and I say that is a good, it's an objective good, it's one that we should all pursue, two big problems. The first one you already mentioned, Bo, of, well, who determines what's actually beneficial for humanity? Because there is a lot of debate. So, for instance, when you got guys like Nietzsche and Hitler later on, who believed a lot of the writings of Nietzsche, his idea was the Ubermensch, right? The, the Superman. So, the idea of Nietzsche was we need to evolve to this Superman, this Ubermensch. And what that means is it means restricting the rights or maybe even taking away the lives of the undesirables within the community so that the noble, the, the wealthy, the affluent, and the physically appealing of the society can better reproduce to better produ uh, produce progeny, and therefore they will become the dominance within the society. And that was Hitler's whole thing. Why should we focus on benefiting the poor, for instance? Why should we pour resources into people where even if they do reproduce, they're probably going to reproduce people who are undesirable just like them. They don't have a so social framework to be able to raise out of that poverty. 
and now they're just a plague on the nation itself. Wouldn't we do better if we just eliminated these undesirables and push forward? Uh, the second problem is that, again, this has been used to support racism. Why should I care about humanity as a whole? Why wouldn't I just care about my nation or my race or a particular creed? Why should I care about human society in general? That is really interesting. And, and by the way, Nietzsche comments on this uh, when he's talking about it. And Nietzsche is an atheist, by the way. He's not a Christian. But his whole purpose is this idea of global altruism, that a one man, that every man should not just be focused on self-interest, but the interests of his neighbor. Uh, not just the neighbor next door, but the neighbor in the country next door. He says that's a Christian ethic, right? Humanity has never had that ethic. No society in humanity has ever had that ethic until Christianity, where you have Jesus dying for his enemies, praying for those who are persecuting him, and encouraging his apostles to go to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel to all men and all nations, right? That Christian ethic gave birth to the foundation in which we said the human race is inherently valuable and we should do everything we can to promote it. Up until that point, that was never in anyone's mind, ever. <laughs> and now Nietzsche, when he's looking at these people saying we should just care about human flourishing, he's like, why should we care about human flourishing? Why shouldn't we just care about ourselves or the benefit of the Ubermensch, the super people, the people who are the best among us. Why would we care about the poor, the destitute, the invalid? Like, why would that matter to us? Uh, so th that's a huge, huge problem with this kind of philosophy. And when it comes to sexual ethics, this is another really difficult thing because it's not, there's no knockdown, drag out evidence for this. Perhaps, let me put it this way, if you take the sex workers and things like that if human flourishing is the goal if human flourishing is the goal what if i proved that societies that subjugate women societies that oppress women do better at reproducing and have societies that flourish because or have more children because they have more children right and if they were coming against me and be like well that's not true look at it is every it? country yeah. <laughs> that has liberated women does not have many kids, right? We're not doing too great. <laughs> we're not doing the human flourishing. Yeah, we're not flourishing too good. I was, I was looking at a statistic two days ago. I told my wife this. Uh, so if this is obvious. In order for your just your country, your ethnicity, to be able to just replace itself, you need to have two kids per every couple. That just makes sense. I have two kids. Me and my wife are two people. When we die, those two kids yeah, will replace us. Yeah, just to keep it where it's at just to keep where it's at every country in the west is below 1.5 yeah right? every country in the west so that means if if nothing happens if we don't have any immigration in the next 50 years then our population will be half in 50 years right that's that's how great western society is doing that's how good our human flourishing is going <laughs> that's how good it is so I mean, again, the, the arguments are just so weak where it's like, what if I could prove that you say, okay, well, some women who do this are depressed or they're treated poorly. But what if I could prove that these few people being mistreated would lead to societal flourishing? Don't the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few? And isn't the future and the progeny what we're really worried about? So what if I can disadvantage and hurt a small member of the population so that more children are being born. And maybe we need to be more sexualized to do that. Maybe the reason why our population is going down is because people aren't sexual enough. What I tend to think, and that's, you've just blown up a lot of these arguments already. <laughs> yeah. You know, it just kind of really, um, you know, maybe Robert Jensen, we got to have him on. That'd be cool. <laughs> but, um, but I was also thinking too, is like, what you do is you take away individual responsibility, sexual responsibility too. When you say, when you give a, an answer like, hey, we will, you know, human flourishing, you know, this doesn't flourish humanity, you know, the way I see it, the way I think it should be. You know, what you do is re restrict someone from doing what they do. Right. And, or what they want to do. Right. And maybe what you need to do now is you need to force people in into into a certain behavior sexually to be able to produce the human flourishing that you're talking about. Mm. And 
So what you start doing is you start taking away of individual rights for your collective goal. Right. And then what you're doing is you're stripping away people. And the only way to do that in a society is through a governing board. Right. And so then, again, I think we've touched on this before in podcasts, but then you force the hand of government to become more totalitarian, mm. to strip people of individual rights for the sake of, quote, the collective. Right. And now you're starting to sound a lot like Mao. Right. Or you're starting to sound a lot like Hitler. Yeah. And you're starting to sound like these people who are very much for the collective. Right. And who say, hey, you know what? We, we're going to strip away your individual sexual rights for the sake of the best of the country. Right. And and so this, to me, starts sounding a little, woo, we're getting into totalitarian world. Right. You know? in this in this way so and there's there's two big problems with this and christians need to understand this as well the the first thing is as a christian our worldview does work and is adequate in addressing this to an extent so in other words we as christians we don't look at this and say it's all about human flourishing it's about god's glory so in other words the christian perspective is not what would be best for man it's always what would be best for God. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. So we look at our sexuality and we say, what honors God in the way that I utilize my sexual preferences? Like, how does this honor God's nature uh, of being a trinity of diversity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? How does my gender reflect that? How does my sexuality reflect that? God creates in his own image. How can I create in my own image with my wife and my spouse through producing offspring? Right? There's, there's a lot of theological principles there that undergird and control and shape the way that we view sexuality as Christians. And it's really cool and it's very precious and beautiful. However, however, any, I, I can't remember who said this. I think it was uh, Teddy Roosevelt. He said, a government that is big enough to fix all your problems is big enough to take away all of your rights. <laughs> and so, like, essentially, once you have, so he has his vision, right? Robert Jensen has his vision of how he wants sexuality to be practiced. Now, this is very key. Once the government can have authority over your sexuality, right, which is what we're asking, right? <laughs> we, we want the government to start arbitrating between porn, the porn industry and stuff like that. We're actively asking it to instigate itself in human sexuality in various areas. And beyond that, the means in which they would have to do it, the means that we would have to give the government to do this is where is pornography? It's not like they could burn all the videotapes, which even then I, I have issues with that, but it's not like you could burn all the videotapes. They would have to be given the autonomy to oversee internet, right? to oversee people's access mm -hmm. to internet information. Now, you know, you and I have made this point for a long time. Is it that morally I have an objection to the government doing that? No. It's that philosophically I have a worry about a government that's big enough to do that. Because if they ever chose, and, and we've said this before, if they ever chose to then turn that government gun against Christian theology, they could very easily do that. Which, it, it, which, which to us, we've talked about this, but there's a thin line there. Right. I mean, that is, that is a super slippery slope. Right. Where it's easy, I think, to go uh, from, from, you know, pornography to just say, you know what, the Bible, and we already see it, the mm -hmm. Bible's patriarchal. Right. It's misogynistic. Right. It's it got lustful behavior. Right. It's got concubines. Right. It's, you know, all this it's stuff. It's got a very sensual book in it. Yes. Right. Song of Solomon, I don't care how you look at it, man, that is a sensual book. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, you know, even out of its Hebrew context, man, that is a very, very sensual book to the extent where, uh, you know, many Jewish people wouldn't let their kids read it until they were adults. So, I mean, that's pretty radical. And you have very other very sexually explicit content within the Bible. Now, maybe uh, maybe you know, Robert Jensen, too, is just discussing like, hey, I'm not for people's not 
doing sex the way they want to do it. I just don't think there should be an industry. Right. You know, something that's in, that's people are being paid for, right. that there's this, this, this building that people go to and film things right. or whatever. And you can have that, like I said, <laughs> it's, it's a different thing to have that as a philosophical objection, right? Which I would agree with. Would I think the world would be a better place <laughs> if the porn industry stopped existing? Yes. Do I want to give a government agency the power to destroy it, though? No, I do not. <laughs> I don't think that's a good idea. So the same way, he can have a moral objection to it. He could say, I think that it's bad for women. Uh, I don't think he has got a great philosophical uh, foundation to say that. But I would actually agree with him. I'd be like, I think this is bad for women. I think it is bad for men. I think it does have Im impact on them. I, I would rather it not exist. But I also don't want the government to have the power and authority to level an industry because it's morally objectionable to them. Um, now, now, again, there's, there's varieties of this because someone might say like, well, what if the government say, would you want the government to have the ability or the power to be able to destroy, let's say, Planned Parenthood, which is another agency that I hate, uh, much more than the porn industry, but I do hate it. Uh, in, in that case, I would say, yes, I would. And so there is degrees, right? And we as Christians, we as, as people who want liberty, right? we want liberty in our personal life, right. we have to have these difficult conversations of, do we want the government to control our ability to do this or ability to do that? And how much, yeah, and how much how much do you want the government to get its hands in? Right. And um, I, I love what Paul says, you know, first Timothy chapter two, when he's talking about the government, he just says something so cool. He's like, pray for leaders and those in authority. And this is why he says that we might live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. What should the government have the authority to do to provide peace, relative peace to your life so that you can honor God in serenity and reverence, right? That's the whole point. So, for instance, I would look at the Planned Parenthood and say, that organization is depriving hundreds of thousands of babies from their right to life every year, right? Millions over the course since Roe v. Wade. They don't have the ability to live a quiet and peaceful life in all reverence because that right was stolen from them by this organization. The porn industry doesn't actually have the power to restrict you from living a quiet and peaceful life in all reverence to God. It doesn't have the ability to do that. Uh, those people who work there, they're not slaves, right? They're not, sex slavery is illegal. If the industry was doing something in which they were exploiting sex slaves, now you're not talking about getting rid of it, you're talking about regulating it, which me and Bo have said a lot in this podcast, right on, right? <laughs> it should, we don't like the idea that just any any industry can go on without any regulation whatsoever. That's bad, that's wrong, that would deprive people of their rights. So regulate porn, yes. Give the government the ability to destroy it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Or <laughs> maybe or maybe you know, maybe to maybe maybe like Robert Johnson it would or Jensen would like it if all women couldn't work in porn, only males could. Right. You know? So men are the only ones objectified. That's right. <laughs> so so males can be, you know, so you can have the opposite of misogynistic <laughs> attitudes. I love, uh, there's this episode of The Office. I love that show. <laughs> it's very insightful, and that's why some of the episodes are getting taken down. <laughs> but um, there's, a, there's a really cool episode where Michael Scott's best friend is kind of a sleazy guy named Todd Packer, and he's encouraging Michael to hire a stripper to come to this guy's bachelor party. And the bachelor party is at work. And Michael says, I can't do that. That's sexual harassment. And Todd Packer says, we'll get a male stripper because that evens it out, you know, separate but equal. <laughs> and Michael's like, that's what that means. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> you have this instance and uh, it's a joke. It's tongue in cheek. But I think some people have that idea of yeah. if we equally objectify men, then it evens it out. I was reading an article last week I don't remember the name of the show and I probably shouldn't say the name of it anyway, but there's a very famous show where uh, it's on, I think HBO or something like that. And there's a very, very famous actress, very beautiful actress. And in it, she gets naked a lot in the show. And somebody asked her like, Hey, how do you, cause you're a feminist. You have very strong views on stuff like this. 
I mean, don't you feel like this is objectifying that you're getting naked, that you're objectifying yourself in this way? And she said, well, I have a very firm policy that if I'm going to do any nude scenes, I demand an equal amount of nudity from my male co-stars. <laughs> and so she fought. The, the only thing that she did is she fought with the directors to make sure that her male co-stars also had to get naked in the show and to have an equal amount of nudity to her. And in her mind, that was equality. Right? Yeah, <laughs> well, that was equality. yeah, and that's not necessarily pornography. Right. You know, just getting nude, because then we'd be really, that would be really interesting if you had a government that said, okay, no nudity. Right. Right? And again, that gets into a really interesting talk as well, because what's the definition of pornography, right? right. If you've ever read the textbook definition of pornography, really vague. Right? Yeah. It's anything that, I think it's- Causes any, arousal. Anything that causes arousal. Well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> human beings <laughs> tend to be aroused by a nice sunset. Right. <laughs> and, and again, that's what <laughs> Bo means when he says it's a slippery slope. Yeah. When you have a term that's that broad, and then you're going to say the government has the capacity to regulate and outlaw porn, and porn has such a broad <laughs> definition, you've just given the government a lot of power. Yeah, and we see that's how that's going on in our day right now. And, that's right. And um, so, yeah, great. Uh, modern day example right now would be with the vaccine mandates and again wherever you fall on this on the spectrum of what you believe about vaccines and whether or not you should get it that's fine but we're not talking about the vaccine we're talking about the government's authority to mandate it so once you look at the government and you say well the government through OSHA uh, the Occupational Safety and Hazard uh, Agency because OSHA has the capacity to regulate safety in the workplace Right. That's a very broad term. <laughs> and now all someone has to do is argue that it's unsafe to have unvaccinated workers within a workplace. Now, what have you done? You've given OSHA the capacity to regulate people's safety through mandating the vaccine. And that's exactly what the Biden administration is pushing for right now. Based on a lot of shaky information. Right. Very uh, shaky. Information very that's not quite clear right. to the American people. Right. Of that this is exactly how we should go about these um, jabs. Right. You know, or their their um, effectiveness right. in, in humans and how long they are effective and what really constitutes uh, fully vaccinated. Right. And, um, uh, and right now we are in a giant experiment there is no experiment, uh, experiments that have been done on all this stuff that we're going through. Right. So this is it. Right. And, and that's uh, and that right there is what's making people so nervous about this. Because at first, when the pandemic first started happening, people were just like, oh, yeah, the government has the authority to do everything they can to prevent people from dying. But what they didn't realize is what a big check they were just writing to the government. And it started implementing itself everywhere, right? For instance, the unemployment benefits and the anti-eviction notice, right? So for a while, landlords could not legally evict their tenants, even if they weren't getting rent checks. Guess who passed that? Not the Congress, <laughs> which is how this is supposed to go normally. The CDC passed it. Does, now, what on earth is the CDC does the doing? CDC have to do with eviction of tenants by landlords? So we're all, all we're just trying to show you guys is if you're a Christian, you're like, yes, give the government the power to do this. Give yeah. the government the power to do it. Yeah, we're just saying that human flourishing yeah. in the hands of government <laughs> right. and their definitions of what human flourishing looks like right. can be very individually restrictive right it can very much take away any individual want right or desire right and now you are working with the mind you're basically obeying the brain of the government right and what they think is best for the collective right You've basically given over your individual rights to a body of people um uh, what is called the hegemony the right. power structure right and that hegemony is running the show right and that's why you know me and Bo do what we do um, our mission and our vision 
for this city, our community, as well as uh, churches around the world has always been, it's not about attacking the industry. It's about empowering the individual to be able to make right sexual decisions before God. So in other words, what we want is we want the topic and the issue of sexuality to be brought to bear in the individual's life. I want the individual to understand what what the Bible says about their sexuality and specifics, um, how we are to use it, and what resources they have if they're struggling with self-control, if they're struggling with the capacity to control their sexual urges. Because let's be real, sexual urges are some of the most natural and powerful urges that we have, right? They're, they're very powerful. That's why it's so tough for people to be able to resist the sexual urge, even if it's things that they don't want to do, meaning things that consciously they're like, I don't want to cheat on my wife. I don't want to view pornography. These things are bad. But the sexual urge is so powerful that they find an inability to be able to practice it as well as the struggle with the flesh. So what, what me and Bo are always doing is we want to educate people to help them understand the sexual issue in their own life. And we also want to educate people individually on what resources do we have as a church and a community to be able to fight the sexual urge and to gain more and more victory down the road. Yeah, and this is the importance of uh, church right. uh, and churches in a, in a country. Right. Is if you if you don't allow churches to uh, and, and churches are made up of individuals that lives get changed individually right. within, uh, you know, uh, the Christian church, then you and if you if you kind of poo poo the idea of any kind of religion, mm. then basically all you're asking for now is a secular uh, body which is called government, right. the, the secular church, if you will, right. and their pastors and their evangelists to dictate something. Right. And that goes to the collective instead of really in the churches looking at individual life changing, hmm. you know. And so, um, you know, you know, yeah, so we might be barking. I guess what I'm saying is that sometimes people, I think, are barking up a tree that, they really don't want to go, you right. know, they don't want to go. Um, anyway, let's, let's go on with this. Yeah. So it says, um, um, let's see, we, we stepped is, on human flourishing, right? Yeah. It is crucial to challenge pro pornography feminism with a critique that has been developed by women in the feminist anti-pornography movement, which includes many survivors of the sexual exploitation industries. Second, there are other crit, critics of pornography who work from conservative and religious frameworks like ourselves uh, while there are some shared values and similar arguments made by feminists and conservative critics the feminist analysis is part of a larger challenge and resistance to patriarchy a system of institutionalized male dominance okay so here he's setting himself apart and he's saying look we're not the conservative or christians out there that are fighting uh, the porn industry or critiquing the porn industry like we are from a religious framework, saying that there's something morally objectionable to it. Instead, he says, no, 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 we're going to do this from the framework of against the patriarchy. Now, wh what is he talking about there? Well, he's talking about the male-dominated um, rule that has permeated the world. So males have dominated... Um, all, quote, important areas of society, the family, the business, um, government. Um, so those three, you know, cover a lot of ground. Right. And that males have dominated that. So that's what he tends to be thinking of is the patriarchy is the problem. Right. That there is an institutionalized patriarchy. So and because... Uh, religion uh, he feels is patriarchal right. in its nature, that's a problem as well. Right. That's just perpetuating pornography. That if you got rid of patriarchy, then you get rid of pornography. Right. So, and, you know, I, I don't know if this is, I don't know. I, I've seen some things on Mao where Mao tried to basically take women and strip them of their beauty uh, for seasons. Hmm. And um, to kind of to make the sexes look almost the same, hmm. you know, and um, of course, he himself had a harem, 
you know <laughs> <laughs> rules for thee but not for me <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but you know um but it, the the idea is that if you strip away people's um you know um ideas of the the patriarchy the the male dominance looking at the beautiful woman right. objectification this whole thing then you would you know basically it it seemed like to him he th- felt like he could rule people easier right that it would you know because let's face it if you know as an individual if you see pretty people and you want to be with them the last thing you want is some government telling you don't do it right you know you want to go on your sexual autonomy so to speak right Um, beyond that in in cultures that try to become truly so i'm I'm gonna throw out some words so we've learned patriarchy right in this article Mm -hmm. There's another word, egalitarianism, right? So egalitarianism means that you're trying to create as much equality among every facet of human life as possible. Uh, When you get into socialistic communities like the one that Mao was trying to create, uh, well, he did create, uh, the issue that you get to is it's very easy to, in some ways, if you give the government enough power, to economically even out everybody, right? To Because all you got to do is get, the government just gets all the money <laughs> and then d- redistributes it as it sees fit. And then it's very equal across the board. The main problem you run up against though is what about individual inherent superiority? Uh, and this would be things like physical attraction, right? So someone who is born more physically attractive than you has advantages in life that you don't have. Yeah, this is something Thomas Sowell talks about, that right. article we've read with Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Right, absolutely. So th- the idea there is, and you could, uh, I think in Kurt Vonnegut, he, he had the idea of uh, athleticism even, <laughs> right? So even if you're- Ballerinas. Right, that's right, ballerinas. Right? So the ballerina's athleticism and aesthetic grace and beauty in the way that she moves gives her an unfair advantage over people who can't move that way. So we got to like break her ankles and then <laughs> she's just as clumsy as you and me, that's right? right? That's that's the idea. So Mao might be looking at it and saying, well, how do I build a truly equal level uh, level playing field for everybody? And since beauty affords advantage, beauty is problematic and I need to steal it away from people. Uh, that's That's a really interesting thing. Uh, women, ha- there are some feminists who believe that. That's why there were a lot of feminists who wore very baggy, unflattering clothing. Uh, they cut their hair very short. They refused to wear makeup, right? Anything that would accentuate femininity, right? Feminine beauty, which they saw as problematic because men would objectify that feminine attractiveness. They tried to destroy it, basically. They tried to get rid of it. Yeah. Um, that is that old saying, uh, she cuts her nose to spite her face. Right? <laughs> you know, like this, there's this idea where I'm going to actually get rid of something inherently good that's in me, which would be beauty and attractiveness, which are goods, right? God created us to have attractiveness in the Bible. Certain people are called out as being very attractive people. Saul was a very good-looking guy. Joseph was a very good-looking guy. Uh, Rachel was a very good-looking woman, right? So the Bible paints people as being very attractive. That's a good. And then in heaven, obviously, uh, when people are in perfected states, the beauty that the human being is going to have is going to be perfected. I wonder if that's why some people go the route of trying to, in a sense, remove beauty from the culture. In a sense, like, you know, when you're not, if you don't see yourself as beautiful Mm. or you look at other people that seem to be better looking than you or more fit than you. Right. And you go, man, they just seem like they have something. And, but you feel that's innate wrong. There's something wrong in that. Right. Then instead of maybe you doing something, maybe it's, maybe a part of our human condition is one where we look at people that are better. Right. That are innately just more pretty. Right. And we say, we got to get rid of that. Right. That that is the problem. That's the problem. That's why people are being favored. And that's why men are lusting, right? Le- LeBron James, he's so yeah. good at basketball. Right. It's his problem. It's we his should, fault. We should cut off his ankles <laughs> <laughs> and, and shorten him like a foot. You know? <laughs> that's right. Uh, good five feet what are you talking about (laughs) but you have a lot of even and by the way he claims that the patriarchy is about this 
there are very patriarchal societies that do try to remove human sexuality and lust and objectification of women. The way they do it, though, is they put women in very unflattering clothing. It would be like the hijab in uh, Muslim nations. So you do have nations that do that, but notice what's happening. And this is very subtle. And most people that exist in this feminist bubble don't realize how contradictory this worldview is. So when you say that, when you talk about female objectification, why is it happening, right? Why is it occurring? If the idea is to desexualize women, there's an inherent view there, and this is how it goes, and you'll see how the logical progression is very, very simple. If sexualization of women is why we have issues, right? They're too beautiful. They're portrayed as being too sexual. Therefore, there's lust. Therefore, there's pornography and all these other things. Does it make it the man's fault or does it make it the woman's fault? It makes it the woman's fault. So what we're talking about from a Christian perspective is the beauty is not the problem. Women being sexual is not the problem. The problem is your heart, male, right? As a man, I have to look in the mirror and say, this is my problem, right? If there were no demand there would be no supply if the porn industry which is a over a hundred billion dollar <laughs> industry every year yeah right? they don't pay for porn they don't pay for porn right this yeah. is not like a small minority of of cruddy dudes in a mm -hmm. basement this is the majority of men and women viewing and partaking of these things so you can't look out and say women are just too pretty Dude, and they're, they're in, you know, really sexualized clothing and they're in these sexual positions and that's why lust is so bad and that's why men don't take women seriously. Or perhaps men are just fallen and their inclination now is to objectify everything that has utilitarian value to them, right? Because if you look at it, men and women don't just do this with sexuality. They do this with everything right right they do it with everything they look at money as something that is for their personal advancement and privilege they look at career that way they could look at kids that way they could look at resources that way everything has been abused by men and women throughout history for their own personal advantage and growth so this is not in other words when we have this freudian idea and it is freudian by the way freud believed everything basically boiled down to sex right right sex <laughs> and parents sex and parents is like the great evils of the world thank you freud yeah but if if we have this freudian idea that we're going to make a mockery of everything but we when we have a christian world you have oh men are born fallen and in our fallen nature we're going to pervert every good and perfect gift that is provided to us by our father it doesn't make the gift evil, but it does make the heart evil. Yeah, what gets me too, it, it, from the Christian perspective, because we have that idea that there's something wrong with the human condition, whether it's patriarchy, what you call patriarchy, or what you're calling matriarchy, right. Women -led. We, we both have a problem. Right. So how many of us have known families that are matriarchal right and they're not that great right <laughs> <laughs> you know they they got issues too right and 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 so there's enough issues to go around and there's enough problems right so to me to blame patriarchy seems again like again we're not pushing it far enough right we're not pushing the the problem we're not getting to the real root of the problem still right we're still moving in just uh you know kind of these haphazard ways right you're not really thinking it through so we'll get rid of one problem and produce a different one <laughs> right right so okay so it says third it is most important for men to support a critique of pornography based on fem in feminism so this is what he's asking us to do Right. An increasing number of men are rejecting the use of pornography because of the negative effects on their own sexual imaginations and sexual lives, especially when they are caught in addictive like patterns. This self-awareness is a positive development, but only a first step. Men have to, a responsibility to join a feminist movement that puts the harm to women and children at the center of critique of pornography so he basically is saying hey I want you guys to not like pornography and not like the pornography 
fee industry because of its subjugation of women and children and the harm that it does to them. Right. Now, th this is actually something that I have a level of agreement with him on. Uh, now, this is very 12-step. Now, the, the idea of the 12-step of viewing alcoholism, you know, they use uh, 12 steps obviously began as alcoholism. The main problem is, is that the variety of people who want to get sober or quit a behavior, they do it for purely selfish reasons. Uh, this is impacting my life. And on one level, I would agree with him that if someone chooses to avoid pornography or the porn industry for purely selfish reasons, that doesn't necessarily make that person better, right? So he is telling us, which is very interesting, he is telling us it's good to make life decisions for reasons outside of yourself. Where I would disagree with him, though, is what he's pointing us to. So he's saying, don't make the decision for yourself. Make the decision for feminism. Um, that is, I believe, it an sounds very religious, right? It sounds religious because <laughs> it is. <laughs> sounds religious. like sounds like the religious guy, right? Get, right. Give ultimate fealty to this. Yes. Right. And in this case, it would be feminism. Yes. So just as so, it's hard to critique Christianity in that point uh, right. from their perspective at this point because then they would be critiquing themselves. Right. Just as we point people to a greater motivation other than just the selfish motivation to get off whatever they want to get off. Right. You know, but they do it for the glory of God right. per se in the Christian worldview there or Islam worldview that I or, or Judeo. Uh, the Jewish worldview. Let's give glory to God. Right. You know, glory to Allah right. kind of idea. Well, they're saying, let's give glory to feminism. Right. <laughs> Man, let's give glory. Let's, let's do it because of feminism. Right. I, I love you know? um, Jonathan Edwards before he died. He wrote an essay, very hard to read, by the way, because he didn't really finish it. It's yeah. more of like an outline, uh, but it's called True Virtue versus Common Virtue. But it's very good. The points that he makes in it are very excellent. And it's a, it's a philosophical argument of why God must be the final reason why we do anything. And he gets into this idea where he says, if I give final reason or cause to any virtue, which would be a morally good act, if I give any cause the final say in why I'm doing it, that cause be better be worthy enough and good enough to protect the good of everyone around me. Right. So he says, what if I do it for the sake of my family? He's like, well, that's great. But then your family has to be good enough <laughs> to be able to fix everything else. And if they're not, then me giving everything to them might ruin them and the community at large. And he keeps bumping it up. And he's like, well, what if I do it for the human race? He's like, well, the human race hasn't done a really good job <laughs> historically <laughs> right. Right. of fixing itself. So if you're going to give it to feminism, the, the problem is, is, has feminism done a great job? And making humanity a better place. Is it really, is all the ills of the world really because men have just screwed up that royally? Is that really the problem? I can't look at any historical event or time in which women have messed things up. There's no way, you know, that's, yeah. it's a very shaky argument. Well, yeah. And the problem is, is whenever you touch on th something that has an uh, ideology like feminism or anything, it, 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 it it's, it's end point is human beings. Right. Human beings are, they're the ones who are making up the ideology. Right. So if you're doing something for the glory of feminism, well, it's the glory of those who have taught feminism, right. <laughs> right. you know? And the problem is, is if we pick into their lives, we notice they got the same problems <laughs> everybody else does. Right. That there is no, there is no class that really is above anybody else. Right. There is no group of people that seem to have it all together, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and we realize that even more today with the president that we have, right. that you can be president of the United States right. and really not, you know, and the vice president not have everything together, right? You know, <laughs> and and you know, and that's true. I mean, you know that that we know that just hands down in everything. Right. You can be a CEO of a company, and you can be very good in certain areas, but really flawed in other areas, right? right? And that happens in everybody's world, right? You know, so you can have the greatest ideology on feminism, but yet you've been divorced three times, right? Or you have horrible relationships with your children, right? You know, or you don't know how to parent. Right. You know, so it, you know, to Jonathan Edwards seems to be saying like that is not the person right. <laughs> that you want to be 
the end all of right. why you're doing what you're doing. <laughs> right. You know? Exactly. Because there's utter failure there. Right. Um, um, and flaws. And God has, he's the ultimate good. Right. So he is the ultimate reason. Right. Right. To be doing what you're doing. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that makes sense. If God is the ultimate good, then he is the, and this makes sense to me too, is like when you, when you are going to do something, um, when you want to change society, you seems like you want to change them, point them to the greater good. Right. Um, if you want to change people to a different ideology, it seems like what you're doing is you will ultimately restrict them of individual rights and you will coerce people to an ideology. Right. That that will be the way that you're gonna gonna go about it. Right. Why? Because your end point is flawed. Right. It's already built on a fallen system. Right. Fallen people right. who coerce and force and mandate and that's the way we are. Right. If you don't believe me to be true, just look at relationships. Right. Right? Re man, if you were better you know, then I would do do this, right? Right. Well, if da 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 da, then you would do that. <laughs> it's all manipulation, coercion. Right. You know, that's how that's how we are as human <laughs> beings. We just giantly do this all the time. You that's know. Right. And it's it's really interesting. You know, C.S. Lewis, what he was talking about. Someone asked him, like, what form of government do you support? And he's like, well, I, you know, I, I, I understand that government needs to exist, but he's like, but I don't really subscribe to any specific. He's like, I guess democracy is the best. And they pressed him on why. And he said, OK, well, the most efficient form of government would obviously be a monarchy because that person has ultimate authority to do everything. He's like, the problem is, is that if you give ultimate authority to a man who is flawed, he's going to not or use that woman who's or a woman or anyone. Yeah. They're going to use that authority to their own ends. And since their ends aren't perfect, they're going to end up doing more harm than good. The reason why he supported a democracy very similar to our founders was he was just like, I believe that all men are fallen. And so I want and all women are fallen. and all women are fallen. Right. When he said men, he meant mankind are fallen and screwed up. And if you give any if you want to give authority someone, he's like, make it as inefficient as possible. <laughs> right. So make it as inefficient so that the amount of impact they can make is small enough where it could be brought back in by the next generation. Uh, so when it comes to this idea of the patriarchy, you have to understand people who talk about the patriarchy, people who talk about critical race theory, they're not talking about making small changes over time. They're talking about ripping up the system from its roots and starting over with a brand new philosophy. So in other words, when they look at the world and they say, why is humanity so messed up? Robert Jensen and the feminists would say, because of the patriarchy. And if only women were in control, the world would be this beautiful utopia. We would all get along and there would be no war. There would be no famine. There would be no issues. And if we give the feminism the power and the philosophies that feminism is it, what he's talking about, the, the philosophies of feminism. That's right. Then everything would be great. So the idea there is we need to rip everything up. So and it's very similar. Like I said, the reason why I bring up critical race theory is because it's a very similar philosophy. The idea is yeah. why is the world so screwed up? Because the white people. Yeah. And if we rip and because white people created the society, we have to undo what they've created and make something brand new. And doesn't it sound so much like biblical thought? Right. It's like it's so religious in its origin, right? Right. There is a utopia out there. Right. And if everybody just believes in this, <laughs> yeah. then we, we can get there. Then we're good. The problem is there is that it doesn't account for what the Bible uh, gives uh, an accounting of. Right. And that is of what you said, the fallen nature of human beings right. is that there is an ultimate problem with no matter what, what ideology or utopian philosophy that you think is going to win the day. Mm. And that is every, every, all of it's going to be built on a cracked foundation. Right. And, um, and that there's something, there's some cancer that's permeating. There's some, there's these little, um, insects that are in the house <laughs> that are eating it away, right? And um, that no matter what foundation it's on, it's going to it's going to fall. It's gonna have issues. I, I was just talking to someone about this the other day, where he was talking about the benefits of Catholicism versus Protestantism, and the the main point that was being made 
is that Catholicism has such a strong governmental structure through the Pope, through the Vatican, through the different cardinals and bishops and stuff like that, and the authority. Like, the, the authority that the Catholic Church has is is vast compared to any Protestant church. It is really, really well, big. Of course. Right? Yeah. And the Dominated argument... Europe. That's right. The argument is, it's like, but isn't that better? Like, if, if Christianity is such a great ideology, why wouldn't you give the central figureheads of Christianity all that power? And my point was... Well, maybe it's because Jesus saw that there is a flaw in humanity, and no matter how great our ideology might be, if we have enough power, we'll use it to hurt other people. We're going to screw it up. And I, I pointed out, I was like, it's actually a miracle that the early apostles did not set up a governmental structure like that. Don't you think it would have been easy for them to create a cult-like environment where they had ultimate power and arbitration of truth? They were the witnesses of Jesus. They could have become like Muhammad or Joseph Smith and said like, hey, we have ultimate authority and power. We have all truth. But that's not what happened. Oftentimes they left. They're constantly denigrating themselves like Paul, who's like, I'm the least of the apostles. Right. Why would he say that? Why yeah. would he say like, dude, I'm the super apostle. And they really were the ones that got beat up and killed. Right. <laughs> got killed. It's like, this is amazing. Like these guys are doing everything they can not to consolidate power. Yeah. Why? Because they understood something. They understood the church. No organization should have that much power. There should be some power, but the more power and the more centralized you make it, the more opportunity it has to be polluted, corrupted, and to be used to the detriment of others. And that's why we have the dark ages. Yeah, and this is, this is what uh, Ravi Zacharias did always a good job of talking about is the, the idea that there's different ways of government, uh, of governorship. Right. You know, there is the autonomous way. Um, there is a um, way where you have a religious group govern you. Right. Um, there is, uh, he mentioned another way too, there was three of them, I forget, but, um, he talked about the one where, you know, you as an individual govern yourself by God. It's like an individual governorship, right. a spiritual governor, right. um, that's over you. And, you know, you know, what is the best, what is the thing that's going to help and change people? Right. Um, is it, is it that centralized body? that um, is going to do it. And if we thought that way, then churches, you know, what we would do in the Protestant world is maybe our, you know, the elder board would be like this dominant figure that <laughs> would be like, you need to blah, 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 right. you know, and you would kind of, you know, mandate people to do certain things. Right. Instead of saying, you know, but the Bible gives place to this thing called the work of the Holy Spirit. Right. And so uh, that there's an individual walk people have with Jesus Christ. Right. And it stresses that. So it's it's not centralized per se. It's not centralized. And it doesn't have a lot of teeth, right? Uh, it would have been very easy for Jesus to set up a church governance that had the capacity to, say, uh, do punitive things to people. Uh, really, the only power Jesus gave the church was to excommunicate, right? It was to discipline people out of the fellowship. That was it. Uh, how easy would it have been if Jesus said, hey, if someone's screwing up, you can whip them, right? And that might sound radical, but that was in the Old Covenant, right? Yeah, That's what the Sanhedrin The only do. other thing I could think of was the uh, the uh, uh, ability to forgive sins, right? people's sins. Right. So, you know, you, Jesus could have given the church more teeth to consolidate its power and to make its members a little bit more fearful, but the only power he gave them is to excommunicate, which is small. That's a very small amount of authority that the local church has. But again, God did give. So it's like if you're going to look at any structure that should have succeeded, would it not have been the nation of Israel? This is a chosen nation by God from a patriarch of faith like Abraham and his offspring, governed by God, given theological and philosophical and governmental instruction by God himself, written on stone tablets, right? Protected by God, right? They have all the recipes of success, and you read the Old Testament, what happens? They fail. And Jesus is very clear. It's not because the law is bad. It's because men can't keep the law, right? right. We just can't do, can't do it. it. 
So it's very important for us to understand that it's not the structures of power, right? That's not it. It's us, the individual. And again, that's, that's why our founders and uh, various other peoples, they've always looked at it and said, the individual should govern themselves. They should have as much personal autonomy as physically possible. Obviously, in our fallen world, a government is important not only to protect us from foreign nations, right, people who would want to come in to conquer us and steal our autonomy, but also to protect from those who are not on that page, who aren't, who aren't trying to respect their neighbor's uh, freedom and wishes, right? So the government exists for that reason, but it's always been, and this is true, our governmental system in America has always been very ineffectual compared to other governments because the founders feared the fallen nature of man and what that fallen nature could do if they were given too much power. Mm. Right. Yeah. So very cool. We're going to, we would, we do definitely want to get through the rest of uh, the article because, you know, Robert Jensen, I really respect and I've always enjoyed his writing. So it's uh so don't think we don't enjoy his uh, stuff. Definitely is always thoughtful to go over. Yeah. It's definitely friendly fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. We, we, uh, we appreciate what he's saying. And like I said, there are, uh, various things that he said already that I agree with. It's just the premise. Yeah, and uh, but it's good for us to launch in there and kind of learn from or take what he's saying and then really think through it. Right. And so we want to get through it. So next podcast, we'll try to finish it up. Absolutely. Hey, you guys, have a good one. Check out runninglight.org to begin our two video series, Take Flight and Love or Lust. You can also send us questions on Twitter at Running Light or on our runninglight.org podcast page. Like us on Facebook at Running Light Ministries, Psalm 36, 8. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures.